Welcome to the Control-Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt Azure. Last time we talked about Azure Container Registry. Today we're talking about AKS or Azure Kubernetes Services. But first, what's up, Yussi? Uh, it seems that, that we were talking about containers each week, or let's say for the past couple of weeks, quite a bit, but that's super interesting. So before we get to the basics of Azure Kubernetes Service, AKS, what I've been up to lately, I've been spending a bit more time understanding the stock market and by understanding meaning that if I want to invest, what stocks should I purchase? So uh, without really going into too deep about the, uh, the lack of investments that I've made, uh, I did invest in, in one uh, aviation company based in Finland doing a lot of commercial flights between <laughs> Asia and, and, and Finland and Finland and Europe. And I invested a bit on that because they seem to be going doing quite well and their Q1 results uh, were announced I think a week ago or so and this was also the same time that we started hearing this worrying news from Asia especially from China so I got cold feet I purchased the stock and maybe five days later I figured yeah I really need to sell this and I did wait for their Q1 uh, financial results were out and I saw the stock going up six percent (laughs) <laughs> and I figured now is the time to sell. I'm so selling this. I sold it. I made a little bit of profit because I didn't have that much stock at the time. And and I'm still super happy, even though if I would have kept them, I, I would have made more profit. But for now, I think I don't understand the stock market, but at least I made a little bit of profit for 2020. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, another stock that's been going quite well is Microsoft. I, I oh, yeah. kept my eyes on the on the stock for a long time and it's, Ridiculous! What a great journey they're doing right now. It is. It is for um, sure. Uh, when I, when I joined Microsoft in two thousand and seven, they they give you a little bit of stock options that vest over time, and I forgot about those. And and I keep getting these monthly statements from the uh, from the stock planning service. So this was 12, 13 years ago when I got the stock, and I haven't touched the stock at all. So looking at the at the valuation of the stock now, the individual stock. I'm super happy, but thinking back to 13 years ago, I'm not sure why I didn't buy much more of those stock options. <laughs> yeah, every last bit of your salary should go into buying those if you look yeah. at the historical record. Yeah. So how about for you? What have you been up to lately? So for me, I've been spending a lot of time playing with Azure Function at scale. Uh, and by that, I mean hundreds of millions of executions per month uh, for queue-triggered and scheduled uh, function apps. And my only tip here is look at dependency injection because a lot of the functions I have, one thing I I realized is it takes almost half a second for every single function execution to run. And that's 500 milliseconds, which is a fairly long time to do the basic things I did. I just did a a couple of operations in a storage table, did some calculations, things that take, you know, two milliseconds. So, I took a look at it and I noticed that every single time I function executed, I'm creating a connection to the database. 
or to the storage table. And this takes a little bit of time, depending on what service provider and what storage provider you have underneath and, and things like that. So I use both uh, PostgreSQL and um, SQL in Azure and also Azure Storage Account. And I could see, depending on, uh, it took a little bit longer because wiring up the connection took half a second uh, or, or maybe three or 400 milliseconds. But if the total execution is 20 milliseconds, I don't want to spend another couple of hundred milliseconds per execution doing something. So I took a look at dependency injection and started using that. So the function app, when it starts on the host, he wires up the connection to the storage provider, whatever that is, my Postgre, my Azure SQL, or my storage account. And I do this once. And then all the functions, every time a queue trigger comes in or a scheduled trigger, the function app is already running. It already has the connection. So I can just inject that service from the host uh, to the actual execution or instance of the function without rewiring that connection. So that brought down the, the execution time by about 70% of every single execution. And when we talk things at scale, like here I have uh, last month about 250 million executions, I could save a lot of time and resources in just that one single thing. Look at DI or dependency injection for Azure Functions. So I trust we are getting a blog article sometime in the future about how to do this. Yeah, I mean, there there is plenty of of articles around how to do that. Uh, I might take it for a spin with my numbers and my proof of concept saying this is without and this is with dependency injection and then do a comparison to actually visualize why this is important when you work at scale. Sounds good. So moving on to Azure Kubernetes Service, AKS. So, so this is really the basics. Uh, what is AKS? You know, this is a great question and, and I've worked to great length with AKS. I don't have it currently deployed anymore. We moved to ACI, which is Azure Container Instances, but AKS, uh, that's Azure Kubernetes Services. And it's pretty much a, a platform that manages your container-based applications and networking and storage components. Um, and the focus area of this is application workloads. So you can do declarative deployments, you have APIs for managing uh, and management operations, uh, it's a great way to do microservices. You have built-in orchestration, availability, self-healing. Um, you can deploy stateless applications or stateful applications. Um, so it's when you take a first look at it, it's like, whoa, what is this? But if you're familiar with Kubernetes, then AKS is just the managed offering of Kubernetes from Microsoft. If you haven't looked at Kubernetes or AKS at all, then AKS is a managed way to orchestrate, build, scale, deploy, handle networking for container-based workloads. So if you are containerizing applications, AKS might be an option. There could be other options like ACI or um, even a web app running as a container, depending on what workload you're actually building. So the, the story about what AKS is can be long, depending, depending if, if we also talk about what Kubernetes is, um, but the, the short story about Kubernetes, it's an open source platform, allows you to build your applications with whatever programming language that you want, whatever OS libraries, uh, whatever messaging buzzes you want, whatever it is, and all your existing CI, CD pipelines can also integrate with Kubernetes to schedule and deploy releases and all these kind of things. Uh, so Kubernetes, 
a way to run your Dockerized or Docker images, AKS, is the managed Kubernetes option from Microsoft in the Azure cloud. Someone reached out to me a couple of months ago to ask about Azure in general and containers and, and AKS as well. And, and they were kind of reaching out for ideas on how to best learn about these. And, and, and I pointed them to the usual documentation, a couple of plural sites courses, as well as the certifications from Microsoft. And, and one of the things I found then was uh, what's a tutorial. I think it, it was both video and text that you do self-paced. A tutorial on getting started with AKS and that was 30 days. And, and then I realized, okay, this might be a bit too much for a lot of people just wanting to run their workloads in the cloud. So thus my question is, if I have a need to run four containers in the cloud, should I look at Kubernetes or should I first test on web app for containers, Azure container instances, or even running my own virtual machine that then runs the containers for me? So again, like the, the common answer we have to everything is, it depends. And why it depends is when you say four containers, it doesn't state what that container is. Is it a heavy processing a computational algorithm or analytics engine that will require 64 cores? Then you need to run it on AKS or you should run it on AKS because here, you can configure the nodes that your cluster is based on. So you can say every single node, which is pretty much a VM, uh, but defined as a node in the cluster, should be based on the, you know, whatever VM image is available. So most of the VM images are available to use as nodes. So if you need something which is outside of the capacity of an app service containerized workload or Azure container instances, because that is also capped and ACI or container instances, last time I looked was capped at 14 gigabytes of RAM and four CPUs, I believe, or four cores. Whereas with AKS, you can select whatever virtual machine as you want uh, for the nodes. So then you can say, I need three nodes or five nodes or a hundred nodes. They all need to be the D11 or whatever type of virtual machine you want. So the question is always, it depends. What is it gonna be used for? Um, how is the availability, availability going to be? Uh, how is the workload uh, going to scale? Is it going to scale? Are there auto scaling implemented or not? Do you want to make use of auto scaling? Then Kubernetes and, and AKS have options to enable different types of auto scalers. Uh, whereas if you do this in, for example, ACI, you would need to handle this yourself uh, or with different mechanics. Uh, so the question is always, it depends. I've used it for production workloads where I've had a heavy utilization of memory and CPU for uh, bursts um, of analysis, for example. So a new analysis jobs comes in and I know this job will require a lot of resources. I'm gonna need another 10 nodes to spin that up on and then deploy my containers across these 10 nodes which are pretty heavy nodes, and then I will run full throttle to do whatever I need to do. When that's done, I can scale back down. And most of this orchestration is also built in. You can define it in your deployment templates and then do uh, just a little bit of orchestration around it to 
then let AKS handle the rest of the, the actual scale out, scale in deployment of the container images across all the VMs and all this stuff. So this is one of the benefits I see with AKS. It's, you know, all the management and, and ops around this is taken care of from the Azure side. You just have to handle like the logical, the business logic. What is the networking gonna look like? What is the scalability? Uh, what is the portability and how do I need to extend it? Do I need it to be um, resilient to, to fault handling? Then there's something called self-healing built into AKS that can see that, oh, this pod or, or this container is broken or it's not responding. You know, I'm going to reboot it or self-heal it and things like this. Okay. So starting from the easiest one, I have a container I need to run. I could go with a web app for containers, ACI. Or then the next alternative is AKS. And AKS seems to provide quite a bit of more control and, and, and management aspects as opposed to ACI, which is quite bare bones in the sense that you spin up your instance and more or less that's it. Then you build whatever you need around that yourself using Azure services or bring your own. So looking at containers then, uh, for somebody who's listening to this, who hasn't used Azure Kubernetes service at all, but perhaps hasn't used containers at all. So a lot of IT pros, uh, they've been using virtualization for virtual machines. So now when we move to containers, what would you say is, is the sort of one minute insights into why should you care about containers now? It's the future, man. <laughs> so and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> done. So, and, and I have real-world experience with moving and migrating workloads from traditional .NET framework into .NET Core and then containerizing this. So I can speak from personal experience on doing that um, you know, at, at scale. And one of the benefits that I see with this is you can run your workload wherever you want the same way. So it gives you the portability. So now I can run my workload in AKS, in ACI, um, in a web app, if it is a web application, or in, in Amazon, AWS, it doesn't matter. I can run it wherever I want. Uh, so it's very portable. Uh, so that's number one. It's also testable. And the testability is that you can test this container and the logic inside of it. And then regardless of where you put it, it's going to work the same. Of course, that's in theory. Because in reality, if you plug this into Amazon or AWS or into Azure, there's going to be different surrounding services that can tie in as well. Of course, so it can be different networking and different uh, things being available to you when you actually run it there. Uh, but the code itself will look the same and run the same. Uh, and it's, it's scalable because the way we build our images is a kind of a microservice approach. So you have one image, but maybe I have 40 instances of the same image to handle requests and process things from queues and do analytics and all kinds of stuff. Um, so Containers offers you portability. It's cross-platform. You can build things in .NET, which is then .NET Core, hosted on a Linux image, and this can run wherever you want. And it's also extendable, so you can just extend the image with additional things. And for a Docker container image, you can say that my workload or my application is going to be based on the .NET Core uh, 2.1 version uh, runtime not the SDK, but the runtime. So this image will contain only the dependencies for the .NET Core 2.1 or 3.1, which perhaps is what you would recommend if you started afresh right now. Uh, and then you will get all the, the dependencies that you require from the base image. Uh, and again, then 
if you build your own image based off of a base image, it might be a good idea to take a look at the base image. What is it referring to? What dependencies does it have? Is it up to date? And ensure that you, when you create a new workload, actually uh, bases off of the latest version of the uh, LTS supported base image. Um, so that, that's the probably slightly more than one minute uh, short insight of containers. Uh, but this is, if you look at the, the worldwide technology ecosystem, everyone is embracing containers. And that's for a reason. It's not because it's a marketing hype. It works. And it's a great way to develop ones and then distribute this however you want. So it's pretty cool. One of, one of the things that I really like with containers is that when I know that this is the kind of workload I want to run, it could be that I run that in on-prem, I run that in the cloud. I don't have to focus that much, if at all, on the operating system anymore. Obviously, I might, I, I might select that it's going to be a Linux, but then it's up to me to define what my application is going to need. And I worry only about those resources. I don't need to worry about the Linux itself and, and how do I configure the operating system and how do I have it running and, and all of those assets that for so long you, you've been needing to worry about yeah. back in the day. So now if, if I'm building a test solution, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to build something. How I typically do it is that I, I use Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. I start building something, then I define the Docker file and I try it locally. I have a Docker desktop running on my Windows 10 machines and I, I can I might just go F5 to say, okay, it spins up or I might use Docker on the command line to configure something and then see that the image looks like this. I might even connect remotely or execute commands against the container and then see if this is suitable for something I want to use in the cloud. So now when you're building something with a team that I don't usually do, is it this sort of same approach that everybody in the team kind of builds bits and pieces and run those locally? And, and when you're satisfied, you, you combine those using Azure DevOps or something else? Or is it that you don't really need to run anything, anything locally anymore. You run everything in the cloud from, from the get-go. So that's uh, actually a great question. And like you say, if you're developing yourself, you can do it in a plethora of different ways. Um, one thing that is always the, the key to the universe in, in my world is uh, DevOps. So you have Azure DevOps in my case. Uh, you can use a, a different CI, CD kind of platform if you want. I'm using Azure DevOps, which have native integration with Kubernetes. So whenever I make changes on my end, if I'm in a multi-person multi or multi-developer team, I can make changes and I commit them and sync and a PR is automatically executed, verified by finding that everything builds and the Docker image is building correctly and, and whatever verification tests I have, and then that gets automatically merged back into the, to the main branch, for example. This is one way to do it. And then you can deploy that to a test cluster. Right, but there's another option, and and so this first option, this is something that you see a lot with generic container development. You have a, a distributed team, everyone works on different types of microservices. You commit, you run automated tests and verify everything is okay, merge it back, and then do a deployment, to a, a, a test and the staging, and then to production, uh, which is you know pretty cool. But with AKS, if you are using AKS, you actually have something called Azure Dev Spaces. And this is something I think was announced 
2017 maybe as a preview or 2018 i can't really I, remember I, I think it was 2018 built during the the keynote on the on the first day right uh, so azure dev spaces is pretty much a like to to quote what they say on the docs website it's a, a rapid iterative kubernetes development experience um what the benefits are that i've seen is and minimizes local machine setups. You don't need to replicate what a cluster looks like. So in AKS, you have a cluster, there's X amount of nodes. On each node, there's you know, different deployed things. There could be uh, different types of pods running, which is you know, hosting containers and, and all this stuff. And with Azure Dev Spaces, you can set something up on the dev machine so they can connect to a real AKS cluster in your dev environment in Azure. So when you deploy from your machine, you can actually deploy into an Azure Dev Spaces, which is a real Kubernetes cluster. So you can actually test your application for real in a real cluster before you even get this thing out the door into your CI CD pipeline step. Um, so it decreases the setup time for new developers. You increase uh, team velocity. Uh, you can iterate faster because you don't have to wait for all these you know, big steps and tests to take place. You can actually now do development bam, push this to the um, uh, Azure Dev Spaces cluster or Azure Dev Spaces enabled cluster, verify it. Yes, it looks good. Commit your changes, let the CI CD pipeline do its thing, run all the automated tests, verify in the staging cluster. Yes, it does look the same. This is what I do expect and schedule for production. Um, so it also removes like the need to replicate or, or mock up all the dependencies you would have if you were running in, in a cluster. So otherwise, to do a real simulation, you would have to mock up everything that is in AKS. And this is just ridiculous to think about. Um, so yeah, Azure Dev Spaces will enable you to work on a real cluster from your own machine. So Azure Dev Spaces sounds to be uh, quite a bit the same what we have with Azure Dev Test Labs, which allows you to mock up things in the cloud and say, I'd, I'd like to spin up 10 VMs with this sort of settings, and then I can do whatever I like with those and then destroy those at 5 p.m. this afternoon. So you can use those in classroom setup as well. So Azure Dev Spaces, this is like a pre-configured Kubernetes setup that Microsoft manages for you and, and you get an easier access to deploy your things in there to see how they run. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, okay, sounds, sounds easy enough. So. What about pricing then? Uh, if I'm now on the verge of, of going with Kubernetes, I still have my four containers and I realize, okay, Kubernetes is the way to go. I will need Azure Kubernetes service. What's, what's, what do I pay for? Do, do I pay for just the compute nodes? Because my understanding is that there's still VMs, somebody else's servers running those, those things for me. So, so do mm -hmm. I pay for the compute nodes? Do I pay for additional licenses or something else? So because this is a, um, um, a show about the basics of, of AKS, let's do the simple story is a cluster, a Kubernetes cluster consists of a node pool or node pools, and they consist of nodes. And a node is just an Azure VM. So an Azure VM can be any size you want. You can, of course, it needs to be available for AKS, but most of them are. Uh, and you pay for what you use. So you pay for the VMs. You do not pay for a license of Kubernetes or AKS. So there's no like control plane kind of licensing as such. There is 
you pay for what you use. So you scale your cluster up by X amount of instances to um, 15 VMs. You pay for those 15 VMs. You scale back down to three, you pay for three. So your build, is it by the second or by the minute with VMs, whatever it is, and you only pay for what you actually use. So it's on you to design your system and the scalability. And again, take care, how do you scale things? Um, only to scale things uh, according to plan. So you don't accidentally spin up, you know, 50 nodes running and you have no idea about it only to get a bill of 5,000 euros, uh, you know, two days later. Okay, so back to my scenario. I still have my four containers. I decide to go with Kubernetes, with AKS. I set up eight nodes. So let's say <laughs> two nodes per container. Mm -hmm. And those would be perhaps uh, D11 class VMs with the SSD drives. And it's five o'clock now, it's Friday. I realize, okay, I'm not going to get this done before the weekend hits and I don't want to work on the weekends. Is there a way for me to just shut down the nodes but still retain everything I have in AKS without incurring a lot of, lot of uh, cost over the weekend? Or do I have to destroy everything, come back on Monday, reprovision everything and, and, and resume my work? So you can scale back down. Uh, as far as I know, you can only scale back down to one node, not to zero. Uh, maybe this has changed. I know there was a user voice and a GitHub issue about that in the past where someone said, if I just want to stop everything but retain all the deployments, I just want to scale down to zero and then scale back up when, when I'm ready. But at that point, you could only have at minimum one node. Um, recommended cluster size is minimum three nodes but you can scale down to, to one node for sure. So if you have your eight nodes and you say, okay, I'm not gonna get this done and there's no need for it to run, you can at least scale down to a single node. Um, and, and last time I was working with it, it was also a discussion whether you could change the node size of the, of the node pool. So if you're on a D11, you could just go down to a D3 or something like this. At the point uh, when I did a research on that, it was not possible. I don't know if this is implemented now, but if it is, I will put a link in the show notes um, with guidance for that, because that was one of the culprits that I had when I got a new job or a new uh, expected heavy computational requirement for, for my cluster. And I know that this is gonna take at least two days to run, and I'm gonna need either 25 nodes on this size or five nodes on a lot bigger size. There was no way for me to ad hoc spin up five new nodes on a bigger size because all the nodes had to be exactly the same size. If this has changed, because I know there was a discussion around it, I will put a link in the show notes, whether it's possible or not. Um, so, so at least if you have that option now, then this is something that I would highly use in my scenarios. Um, but yeah, that, that was a limitation when I last looked at it. Okay, so, so we had a quick look at the basics of Azure Kubernetes service here and, and Probably the key takeaway here is Azure DevSpaces, definitely for development, as well as, as keeping an eye on the pricing in the sense that when you start defining those nodes, you might not want to go with the, with the most expensive compute nodes to begin with if you're not sure what you're doing. So instead, perhaps use something a little bit cheaper and then later on change that to something bigger when you actually know what sort of compute you're going to need. 
Yes, and also, as always, separation of concerns is important. Use different subscriptions. This is what I do anyway. I use different subscriptions entirely for development and test staging and production. So that means I can have a, a lot smaller nodes in dev and I can experiment and try things out and I can simulate or even run like production workloads in the sense of, of data capacity, obviously not with production data, uh, but but with the capacity of production data and put that to the test in dev only to figure out that, okay, I need to scale up the, the node size. I wipe the cluster, set a new one up and I do the same thing. And when I figure out what the best option is, I can then implement this in, in production or staging and then production. Okay, sounds, sounds clear enough. So last bit of the show, word of the day, Swedish and Finnish. Let's start with Swedish. What do we need to learn today? So in, in Swedish, here's a, uh, a phrase that I've used a lot recently, um, but I never really gave it a lot of thoughts. It's in Swedish, it's called who gets some stuket. And this is when two alternatives are equivalent or indifferent. And the literal translation is a bit funny and it's pretty hard to translate. It's like chopped as stinged, like stinged by a bee um, or stung uh, by a bee. And so it doesn't really mean anything as such, but the English equivalents or, or similar sayings would be six of one, half a dozen of the other, or same difference, or as broad, as long. You know, it's that type of saying. But in, in Sweden, we say chopped as stung. But then in Swedish, who gets some stukit? Okay, so it seems, seems clear enough to me. So let me try. Who gets some stukit? There you go. Very good. Excellent. So Finnish, this is a tongue tongue twister. So hold on to your IKEA chair. So let me let me say this first and explain what it means. So in Finnish, we might say <laughs> And this is and how, a, this is an, an actual word or a phrase? Uh, it, it's an actual phrase that kids learn. And and the exact translation in, in English is the water goblin was hissing in the elevator. Yeah, because when that happens, of, of course, you need to know how to say yeah, that. Exactly. And there, there's multiple variations to this to, to make it even harder. But the idea is that you learn the S sound properly, especially for kids. And, and even for adults, this might be a challenge sometimes. So once more. Close, really close. <laughs> I'm not going to try that again. <laughs> no, no need. That's close enough. Anybody can understand you now. Uh, perfect. All right, then uh, thank you for this episode and I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.